0: People think there's one reality, but there's loads of them all snaking off like roots and what we do on one path affects what happens on other paths. Time is a construct, people think you can't go back and change things, but you can. That's what flashbacks are, they're invitations to go back and make different choices. When you make a decision you think it's you doing it, but it's not. It's the spirit out there that's connected to our world that decides what we do and we just have to go along for the ride. Mirrors let you move through time. The government monitors people. They pay people to pretend to be your relatives. And they put drugs in your food. And they film you. There's messages in every game. Like Pac-Man. Do you know what Pac stands for? P-A-C. Program and Control. He's Program and Control Man. The whole thing's a metaphor. He thinks he's got free will, but really, he's trapped in a maze. In a system. All he can do is consume. He's pursued by demons that are probably just in his own head. And even if he does manage to escape by slipping out one side of the maze, what happens? He comes right back in the other side. People think it's a happy game. It's not a happy game. It's a fucking nightmare world. And the worst thing is, it's real and we live in it. It's all code. If you listen closely, you can hear the numbers. There's a cosmic flowchart that dictates where you can and where you can't go. I've given you the knowledge. I've set you free you understand? Maybe.
1: That clip from Black Mirror's Bandersnatch never gets old, I say, I say. Its themes are so relevant, not just for Aeon Byte writ large, but for this week's episode, Jason Reza Giorgiani materializes at the Virtual Alexandria once again to wrestle with Saturn and Romance Kali, breaking down time and space with his nuclear ideas. Prometheus Unbound, Sophia Rising, get ready to tap into your inner Uberman here in the Desert of the Real.
2: Ready your breakfast in hearty,
1: But tonight we dine in hell. As a true seeker warrior and a resurrected Christ from the broken places, you always wanted the great answers of life. Now you understand that the universe is weirder than you could have ever imagined. Yet you revel in this because you are high priests and priestesses of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers. You eat nervous breakdowns for breakfast, and you've chosen ecstasy over entertainment. You relate so much to the warning about the empire Neil Peart wrote about in The Temples of Syrinx. We've taken care of everything. The words you hear, the songs you sing, the pictures that give pleasure to your eyes. It's one for all, all for one. We work together, common sons. Never need to wonder how or why. We are the priests of the temples of syrinx. Our great computers fill the hollowed halls. All the gifts of life are held within these walls. Look around this world we made. Equality or stock in trade. Come and join the brotherhood of man. What a nice contented world. Let the banners be unfurled. Hold the red star proudly high in hand.
3: They are dismantling
0: the sleeping
3: middle class. More and more people are becoming poor. We are their cattle. We are being bred for slavery.
1: You are here. You are awake. And you are ready to get the fuck out of this cosmic Pac-Man game and Temple of Syrinx. Ride the tail of the Ouroboros and surf the many dimensions of possibilities. Where are you exactly now to do this? Keaton always said, I don't believe in God, but I'm afraid of him. Well, I believe in God,
3: and the only thing that scares me
1: is- Bite Gnostic Radio, An initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult, culture, and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week I, your host Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird. This is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on you finally lost your mind and come to your senses. And you know, as Philip K. Dick said, that, quote, those who agree with you are insane. Those who disagree with you are in power. The doors
0: are locked, too. They're protecting the people on the outside from us when the people on the outside are as crazy as us. Do you know what crazy is? Crazy is majority rules. Yeah, uh-huh there's no right there's no wrong there's only popular opinion i'm not crazy Um, of course not of course not you want to escape right that's very sane that's very
1: sane as mentioned honored to host jason he will discuss his latest book and follow-up novel to faustian futurist uberman beyond sharing a thrilling work Jason will proffer his latest ideas on Persian mysticism, UFOs, time travel, and so much more. As a bonus for all subscribers, I'll include, for context, our interview on Faustian Futurist. Don't miss it. It's raining gnosis. Hallelujah. And you know that I'm going to say we need this information more than ever. Civilization is collapsing, and there ain't no going back to any old normal. And the old normal was just a dreadful chimera of safety over innovative risk, entitlement, and runaway materialism disguised as human advancement. All of this hiding the perennial shithole of temporality, oppression, and conformity. The only thing that has changed is that for some of us, the illusion of normalcy and progress has been lifted.
2: The illusion of freedom will continue, as long as it's profitable to continue the illusion. At the point where the illusion becomes too expensive to maintain, they will just take down the scenery. They will move the chairs and tables out of the way. And you will see the brick wall at the back of the theater.
1: So it's time for each of us to unbind our inner Prometheus and allow our holy wisdom to rise from our hearts. Time to negate the divide and conquer Circe spell of the Archons of this age, that circular firing squad mentality that is killing our rights and freedoms. Censorship bigotry and intolerance must be mocked to oblivion in this age of Hermes. For we all deserve to be at the crossroads to find our higher selves and sacred destiny.
2: It's not really a measure of mental health to be well adjusted in a society that's very sick.
1: Quoting Philip K. Dick again, he did say in The Exegesis, My big question remains, How faked is our phenomenal world? At one end, the answer could be, it is a partially viewed reality. At the other end, it is a total hypnotic delusion. But the Black Iron Prison, that is real. I used to be in that prison.
0: You see, none of it was real. It was illusion. Your art, your science, it was all a
3: nightmare. Now it's done, finished.
1: Did you know that the color blue was only recently discovered? In ancient Greek, Chinese, Hebrew, Hindu, Japanese, and other cultures, there is no mention of blue. Homer in the Odyssey famously described the sea as wine dark. For the ancients, blue just didn't exist or was a shade of green or another hue until it seemingly appeared or the mind was ready to discern it. Even today, the Himba tribe in Nabibiya does not see blue, or even has a word for it. In studies, when shown a tile of green squares with one blue square on a computer screen, a Himba tribe member only sees green squares. More recently, and in the same vein, Remember the famous dress on the internet where everyone saw it as a different color?
4: Human beings are pattern-seeking animals. By which I mean we prefer ideas that fit a pattern. In other words, we don't believe what we see. We see what we believe.
1: Reminds me of that story of the natives who could not see the Spanish galleys on the horizon. They only noticed the conquistadores when they appeared on the shores on their boats. Why? Their minds could not accept what they had never seen before. And thus all that the natives saw was the ocean horizon and not the Spanish galleys. I've shown other studies in the past where the human mind will completely remove a portion of reality that doesn't conform to its encoding. I mean, if we couldn't see blue at one time, what are we missing from mundane reality right now? What can't we see that other animals can see? Dimensions? Donnie Darko? Time strands? Spirits? Other bloody colors? What can't we see? As Bernardo Castrup and Donald Hoffman have said, our minds are program more to shield us from reality than to reveal reality, an evolutionary feature from our trickster brain to keep us as good United Herd Meat Sacks. In short, there is so much more out there that we are not perceiving, and I'm glad you are here to open your mind to see that so much more, for you were born different than the United Herd Meat Sacks.
4: 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. (sighs) Imagine what you'll know tomorrow.
1: Materialists want to convince us that all they describe and measure, all that we've been trained to experience, is all there is out there. There is nothing beyond mundane reality. Guests like Jason provide the research and insights to counter these priests of the Temples of Syrinx and their Pac-Man program and control. You should tell them to piss off as their only goal is to kill individuality and the sublime once and forever. Not gonna happen. Let us ride the coils of the Ouroboros and experience so many dimensions of possibility. Write your own gospel. Live your own myth.
4: A wise man once said, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. For the tick, reality is a product of temperature and butyric acid. Its perception of the world is its reality. The bloodhound has 200 million scent receptors. Its perception of the world is based fundamentally on smell. A dog doesn't reason, a tick never thinks about the universe in any way separate from its biological interactions with the universe. Human beings, on the other hand. Human beings are the only animal that forms ideas about their world. We perceive it, not through our bodies, but through our minds. We must agree on what is real, because of this. We are the only animal on Earth that goes mad.
1: This is the Aeon on It interview. And as always, we have the pleasure of being joined at the Virtual Alexandria by Jason Reza-Giorgiani. Jason, thanks again for coming on.
3: The pleasure is always mine, Miguel. Great to talk to you again.
1: Always awesome to talk to you. And this time we'll be talking with Jason's second novel, uberman which i have read and uh yeah as always jason uh very intense stuff but uh somehow i liked it a lot <laughs> and uh with us too we've got the uh moon dog uber dog perhaps we call him vans how are you
2: yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, I was good. You stole my thunder with the Uber dog. Yeah, I can, I can aspire to that status.
1: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Jason, uh, what uh, this uh, Uberman for the audience, maybe give them the backdrop. This is the sequel to Faustian Futurist.
3: So, yes, it's a sequel to Faustian Futurist. Uh, and it's also, to some extent, autobiographical. It's certainly not an autobiography, but. Uh, I used this um, second novel of mine to present uh, significant autobiographical material, um, both uh, in terms of certain key events that took place between 2016 and 2018 involving my work with uh, the alt-right and uh, the Iranian Renaissance, and then also reaching back into you know earlier periods of my life, going all the way back into my childhood and so forth, uh, there there is some significant autobiographical material in the book
1: yes there was i uh, i was um i don't know how to say this jason but yeah when i was reading of that story uh, like you said 2016 2018 i was thinking my god uh, what a Den of thieves, and as I say again, Babylon, Washington, was it? Is that something you, is that something you were prepared for? Because I, I, you know, you hear that in Washington, you get sized up. People either they will use you if they want to; if they don't, they'll discard you. They will destroy your name on a drop of the hat. It's uh, it was intense, and I was going, "Wow, was Jason ready?" You had this idealistic scholar who wants Persia what's best for Persia to come back to the 21st century? Uh, was it that shocking for you? You kind of knew you were swimming with sharks in those days.
3: You know, I'm not going to be so arrogant and and conceited <laughs> as to say that I was prepared for it. And yeah, I anticipated that people like this would, you know, encircle me and so forth. No, I really wasn't prepared for it. And um, as I suggest in the book, I think that and this will sound a little strange to someone who hasn't read it yet, the devil's in the details, but uh, I think that uh, these, let's say intelligence operatives who um, approached me and involved me in certain machinations had a very good idea of the kinds of projects that I myself had intended to unfold very carefully over a long period of time. And they contrived a situation uh that was something analogous to inducing a miscarriage they kind of set up for me that the type of uh structures that i intended to carefully put together myself uh with the intention of having it miscarry and uh basically aborting what it is that that i wanted to field as my own project so um yeah it was a real ordeal and uh you know it's been a a trying uh learning experience for me um to have gone through that
1: yeah i've always felt really bad for you and uh, for the audience jason spoke to uh jeffrey mishlove about this but here in this book you really add a lot of details and it's uh it's really sickening what these psychopaths do there and uh in a way it's kind of good jason because you know this uh western allegiance whatever you would call it the anglo-american cartel they don't care about propping up countries it doesn't matter if it's iran russia ukraine the middle east i mean they are just basically pirates aren't they they want to atomize balkanize and take all the resources
3: as a matter of fact uh this character who uh, you know, several names were changed here, and uh, to be perfectly honest with you, it was mainly for legal purposes. Um, th- this entire account that you find in chapter two of Uberman is uh, word for word a literal account of what took place, oh uh, with God. the exception of none of none of this is embroidered. What's in chapter two of, matter of fact, it's it's uh, not even all of the truth. All of it is true, but it's not even all of the truth. In any case, only a few names were changed. And one of these characters who I refer to as um, Frederick Boulder in uh, Uberman literally described his organization as a group of pirates at one point. So you're you're spot on. And uh, so, yeah, it, it was a very disillusioning experience for me.
1: Yeah, well, we're very happy you're still that you... Uh... You survived and you're putting out the work and the scholarship here because you've uh, assisted in waking up a lot of people. And I know you will continue to wake up a lot of people in the name of Sophia and Ahura Mazda and all the other uh, aeons of light. And I would say for the audience, um, I was kind of expecting the same style as Foschian Futurist. But to me, this novel was kind of uh, your... Philip K. Dick expression, your Vallas, your uh, radio free album, because it really is about Jason just uh, fragmenting into different characters, isn't it? Different speculative characters throughout time and space, all of them taking their philosophies with them.
3: I think that's a fair comparison. And I'll tell you why. Um, Anyone who has, you know read either parts of the exegesis or who's read a biography of philip k dick is familiar with the uh let's say real life experiences that inspired valis and you know uh to be frank they're very bare bones experiences i mean the guy had come back from the dentist he had been you know under like uh you know heavy uh um anesthetic and and so, on. so he was in a kind of altered drug induced altered state of consciousness when this uh woman came to his door uh delivering uh i think a pharmacy prescription and uh, this light glinted off of this um pendant that she was wearing i think it was an ichthys pendant and uh in the in the glint of this light somehow he you know got a download of um clairvoyant information about his son's undiagnosed medical condition and so you know the the uh experience that he had on which he hung this meta narrative of valis was a, a fairly bare bones uh you know um uh, series, series of events and i would say that there's a similar relationship between some of the things that I've lived through and, uh, you know, recollections that I've had that I've worked into this narrative. Um, and then, you know, the, the overarching storyline here. Although uh, I'd also say that actually I'm making less out of more as compared to the more that, you know, uh, Dick made out of very little uh, in terms of uh, weaving the narrative of Vallis. There's uh, a lot of truth in this fiction. And one thing that readers will find if they, uh, you know, delve into Uberman is that much of the narrative of Faustian futurist was also uh, embroidered fact rather than fiction.
1: Yeah, for, a, you might say, a nonfiction backdrop, they just have to look at your books, Prometheism and uh, Extraterrestrial Encounters.
3: Yeah, Closer Encounters... And Sorry,
1: closer encounters.
3: <laughs> closer encounters, uh, Prometheism, uh, and Faustian futurists are all very closely related to Uberman, to the narrative of Uberman. And of course, uh, Uberman is also an example, I would say, of novel folklore. Novel folklore is a concept that I developed in the book by that name, which was nominally a book that was an exegesis of Sada Hedayat's novella, The Blind Owl. But uh, in the course of doing this interpretation of the blind owl, I uh, developed this concept of um, recoding the folklore of a people so as to restructure the matrix of possibilities uh, for their field of experience from the level of the subconscious mind upwards. And so it's, it's an idea of restructuring the developmental trajectory of a culture and its world of meaning by recoding its folklore and developing uh, novel folklore. And that's uh, you know, a concept that I have attempted to instantiate through the writing of Faustian Futurist and now its sequel, Uberman.
1: Great. And uh, what the, the title, Uberman, for the audience, is this, uh, you know, they're probably going to ask, is this based on Nietzsche or is this an innovation or a, a wrinkle? Why the title?
3: No, it's just Ubermensch. And um, it's, uh, you know, I thought these days with the term Uber having been very popularized in the <laughs> English language, yeah. you could actually get away with titling a book something like Ubermensch, uh, you know, if you, if you turn it into Uberman. Uh, but there's also a playfulness about the title because, of course, the protagonist is a female. The protagonist of the book, Dana Avalon, is the subsequent reincarnation of myself, Uh, a woman born in um, Gotham, uh, the rebuilt city of New York in 2077. So she's a time traveler who comes back to the 1980s from the year 2112. Uh, And it's playful to title a book with a female protagonist, Uberman, because it also suggests something about the overcoming of man, not just qua humanity, but in terms of the patriarchal structure of human society uh, throughout the course of recorded history.
1: And the year 2112, is this uh, something to do with the Canadian rock band, Jason?
3: It, it, you know, I have no <laughs> idea if there's a connection there. You can fill me in on it. I'll tell you why I chose it. Okay, um, It's not just a random number, obviously. It's a palindrome. Um. and. It reads the same in both directions. So it suggests the idea of the revisability of time, which is a main theme in the book. And uh, also the particular palindrome that it is, has a kind of mystical numerological significance because it's like the scission of the one into multiplicity, right? Like imagine between the two ones that mirror each other, like the twin towers, um, there's a zero. And then that zero is splitting into ones and the one into twos. It's like the, um, the Tetractus of the Pythagorean order.
1: OK, yeah, uh, the rock band Rush released an album, I think it's 1976. They called it 2112 and it's a concept album and it deals with a lot of the concepts that you do and Phil did and Neil Peart or Peart was into trying to understand oppressive uh, authoritarian systems, how technology can save us and trap us and all that, so I just thought it was interesting
3: I'm surprised I've never heard of that now I got to go look it up
1: yeah yeah listen to rush twenty one twelve uh concept album, and I think you'll you'll really relate to a lot of the message in it
3: I promise not to steal the song and use it in a propaganda video for my novel. <laughs>
1: Oh uh, well, yeah, as long as it's for as long as it's good intentions, I think Rush wouldn't mind. Uh, and uh your the character oh just on a little side question here, uh, and that's sort of to appease uh, my curiosity, but the Uberman that's Nietzsche talking about and thus spake Zarathustra. Do you uh see Nietzsche? he really didn't know much about Zoroastrianism, did he? Or did he tap into any of the deeper parts of Zoroastrianism? Or what's your take on that, Jason?
3: It's a very good question. Um, I actually believe that he did. And this is an uncommon view. Um, There is a prevalent uh, supposition in academia that Nietzsche had only a superficial engagement with Zoroastrianism, but I I don't think this holds water when you look at the fact that uh, to begin with, the man was a linguist, he was a philologist, not a professor of philosophy. And so his primary expertise was in the history of languages and particularly the Indo European languages. And the uh, study of Iranology or Iranian studies in uh, Europe in the 18th and 19th century actually came from out of the field of philology initially and then made an impact in history. And the uh, most prominent and substantive Iranologists at the, uh, you know, laid the groundwork of that field were all Germans. I mean, there was Darmester, who was French, I believe, who translated the Avesta, but then most of the, the subsequent contributors to laying the groundwork for the field of Iranian studies were Germans, including Hegel, by the way. And uh, so Nietzsche would have been certainly familiar with uh, Iran through their writings. And another piece of evidence that suggests that Nietzsche knew quite a bit about the historical Zarathustra is that uh, Nietzsche also comments repeatedly on the Persian poet Hafez. And he read Hafez in such depth and detail that he saw fit to make a public pronouncement that Hafez was the greatest poet that ever wrote in any human language. And so I think someone with that degree of uh, familiarity with Iran's whole scope of of history and high culture probably did understand who Zarathustra was. And so I think that um, there's a very high level of uh, critique uh, going on in Thus Spoke Zarathustra where Nietzsche is not just appropriating, you know, the Persian prophet as he calls him uh, as his own mouthpiece, but he's actually using Zarathustra to critique Zarathustra. And there is a there is a uh, a passage in the Genealogy of Morals, and a passage in Ecce Homo*, uh, where Nietzsche says as much that his Zarathustra is the second second coming of Zarathustra, and that Zarathustra alone was a truthful enough thinker who were he to return today would repudiate uh, large parts of his own doctrine on the basis of the spirit or essence of his teaching. And that Zarathustra himself ought to be the one who takes responsibility for the revaluation of all values. Uh, So I think that Nietzsche understood the spirit of Zarathustra's teaching as opposed to the literal content of his writings in the Gathas, uh, and quite adequately was able to conceive of what Zarathustra would say, were he to reappear um, in the modern age. Uh, And interestingly, there was one European scholar, uh, whose name is escaping me at the moment, but, Henri Corbin quoted him at one point. You know, Henri Corbin was this French Heideggerian who then became a leading figure in Iranian studies uh, and a specialist on Sorhavardi. And Henri Corbin quoted this guy, I think it was Adler, who said that Nietzsche was a Zervanist Parsi. In other words, not only was he familiar with Zoroastrianism, but he was an adherent of an esoteric interpretation of Zoroastrianism that goes back to the Sassanid period, and that had a very sophisticated view of the nature of time. So let me leave it at that.
1: Wow, that's out. very cool. And what about the concept of the Uberman? Can we find that in ancient Zoroastrianism? Or is it, can we say it's the philosopher king, like Cyrus the Great?
3: Uh, it's definitely there. And to put it in a nutshell, the if you want to um, Translate is not the right. If you want to, it's like uh, basically tracing back the Nietzschean concept of the Uberman to its Zoroastrian origins. If you want to reconstruct what it would have been in Zoroastrianism, it's the idea of what the human being becomes on the other side of the guard. So there's this concept guard in uh, ancient Iranian thought, and you know uh, Persian and Avestan being Indo-European languages. Freskhgard has a cognate in English. The, our word "fresh" is the same as the root freskhgard, and gard means turning. So it's the refreshing of the world or the renovation of existence. And this is an idea that at the end of time, because of course Zarathustra was the first person with a teleological, uh, progressive conception of time with you know a history that has successive stages leading up to an end of history, that was an innovation of Zarathustra's in the history of thought. Um, at the apocalypse, at the end of time, there's this fresh garde that's going to take place, this refreshing of the world, a renovation of existence. And Zarathustra uses the metaphor of the world being bathed in molten metal in order to express this idea, which I think is an alchemical metaphor and what you know it's the fire of the forge and what comes from out of the other side of that fereshgard is a purified form of human existence where uh what were human beings become Fereshtes, uh with the same root feresh, as in fereshgard and a fereshte conventionally in persian you know it translates uh into angel in english but really fereshte is like um it's like a Crystallized uh, spectral perfection of the human being, which is no longer limited in the way that we are with our current biological embodiment. So, I think in a way, Zarathustra was anticipating um, or prophetically envisioning the transformation of the substrate of human existence by some kind of post singularity technology. And then the basis. Uh, on which it's decided who passes through this filter of the fresh is an ethical basis. It has to do with ethos and whether one has aligned oneself with what Zarathustra calls, I mean, the historical Zarathustra calls the progressive mentality, sepantominu, the spirit of innovation or progress as compared to angraminu or the niggardly spirit of constraint, the petty Uh, constraining and constricting spirit, later uh, contracted to Ahriman in middle Persian. So, you know, in the Zoroastrian cosmology, there's this great battle between these two spirits, the, the, uh, you know, spirit of progress and the spirit of constraint or constriction. And if one aligns oneself with Sepantaminu, then on the other side of the Fereshgar, one becomes this Fereshteh, or superhuman uh, perfected being. And so I would say, that, yeah, uh, that's the basis for the development of the concept of the Uberman uh, or Ubermensch in Nietzsche.
1: Very cool. And thanks for sharing that. And when it comes to writing uh, fiction versus nonfiction, how is it for you? Which is harder? Or do you simply have to switch modes? Or how do you go about writing fiction? You've written so many massive and great books on nonfiction books.
3: It's hard to answer that question because, for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, because I don't think that this quote unquote fiction that I've been writing, both in Faustian Futurist and in Uberman, is normal fiction.
1: Right. Um,
3: I think that, to be honest with you, uh, you know, as an academically trained person who's used to writing text with citations and, you know, footnotes and (laughs) comes out of extensive research and so on and so forth. I'm really a creature of that habit. And, you know, that is my medium as a philosopher. Uh, So I don't know, uh, honestly, how, how difficult it would be for me to just sit there and like, Contrive a fictional narrative, and you know, alternate between a variety of characters, and write from a third-person perspective, for example, and so forth. Um, The style that I've adopted for Faustian Futurist and Uberman uh, is very similar to the first-person style that you find in The Blind Owl, which, of course, I studied deeply. And these books are also intensely autobiographical, which, on the one hand, makes them easier to write uh, stylistically. But on the other hand, also makes it much more difficult than you know someone just uh, weaving a fictional narrative because it's you know you ha- you have to render yourself quite vulnerable to tell this kind of a story, and it involves deep introspection and you know uh, a, a psychological work on oneself to be able to to. Um, to put something like this down on paper. So it's a very difficult question to answer, you know, uh, in, in simple terms.
1: Yeah, sometimes you're just gonna say, something's channeling me. (laughs) <laughs> because it is, and uh, yeah, your book is uh, philosophical, like uh, Faustian Futurist. It's this is obviously personal, speculative. Uh, there's a lot going on, but like Faustian Futurist, it's uh, very visceral and intense at times. I was uh, as we talked before the interview. There was a time I'm reading the book and I'm like I gotta go watch Caligula, Robocop, just so I can get a little relaxation because it's it's intense. Why the intensity, Jason?
3: Uh, Because it is intense. I mean, you know, like you (laughs) said uh, just now, there's a channeling quality to this. There is a mediumistic quality to this writing. um, So that, for example, the parts that involve, uh, I don't know what Plato would have called anamnesis, you know, recollection of fragments of past lives and things like that. That's very mediumistic that the the state of mind that I was in when I wrote those things very was very much akin to channeling. Um, but then even the whole the whole uh, relationship to the protagonist of this novel, namely Dana Avalon, this future incarnation of myself, it uh, how can I put this? It's not exactly. Contrived in a very, um, you know, um, objective manner. I I mentioned in a recent interview of mine that I had this strange experience, uh, which was like a very vivid daydream of being on a sidewalk in Manhattan and encountering this strange young woman. Um, And I want to just, you know, reiterate that, and then add something very key about it that I forgot to mention in that interview. So, which you know, goes to answering your question about uh, the, the frame of mind from out of which this book was written. So this was, um, I think in my early to mid twenties, maybe, maybe I was 24 something like that. And I had this extremely vivid daydream. It wasn't at night. It was like, I was, you know, uh, seeing a vision while, while, uh, you know, reclining in the middle of the day. And I found myself on this sloped sidewalk on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And this young woman came up to me uh, and she was dressed in a kind of tomboyish um, uh, manner. Uh, and she had almost like um, the quality of an, an environmentalist to her, like someone who you would imagine would be collecting samples in the Amazon rainforest or something like that. And uh, curiously, in retrospect, I realized that she looked a lot like me. Uh, granted, you know, as a woman, and she she practically assaulted me and told me <laughs> that people aren't going to care about what I'm writing in the writing about in the future. Uh, and by the way, this was at a time when I hadn't put out a single book, right? Wow. I mean, I didn't publish Prometheus and Atlas until I was 35 years old. So, I mean, I wrote it when I was 31. Uh, in 2012, and then it came out when I was 35 in 2016. So this is well before that, I was like 24 years old, and she said, listen, people don't care about this vision of the future that you're writing about because the world is so devastated and people are so demoralized that all they, if they have any resources at all, and they're not just destitute and starving, they um, retreat into simulacra of different epochs. And people live in places that are like theme parks that reconstruct better eras of the past. And so what you need to do is you need to critique, you know, the you need to critique the present that people are falsely romanticizing and glorifying in the world that I come from. Uh, because like this, this, you know, utopian future that you're envisioning is just not even something that's, you know, within their horizon of consciousness anymore. And so I I mentioned this in a recent interview, uh, but there's one very important thing that I left out, which was that the first thing this woman said to me when she practically grabbed me on this, you know, sloped sidewalk was she she said, "I, I don't have a lot of time and it was very hard for me to get here. So listen. So take that. Wow, for a little bit.
1: that's incredible. She probably was some future version of you from some timeline or something. Channeled her to talk to you. So yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, and your novel definitely plays with different versions of Jason reincarnating and meeting with each other and so forth in different timelines. Uh, as the character Dana tries to, well, she's on her adventure, right? Maybe let's talk about the the backdrop. It's in Gotham fall of 2112 and basically in this future prometheism has succeeded but there's still a villain in it the olympian imperium and they're causing trouble and Dana needs to basically she needs to get in but a time machine well she already is in trouble with her family right she's already a rebel
3: yeah so i mean i'd hardly say that prometheism has succeeded in fact i mean this is a very dark Uh, novel, um, when you consider the, you know, real world project that I've launched, because actually the basic premise of this story is that Prometheism has failed. And what's happened is uh, this traditionalist imperium that I keep warning people about has succeeded in consolidating control almost over the entire earth, with the sole exception being uh, Gotham, which is a reconstruction of New York on higher ground overlooking the drowned skyscrapers of Manhattan. It's a city that's built along, if people are familiar with New York, the the Palisades and the Hudson Highlands, which are high ground that overlook uh, the skyscrapers of Manhattan uh, along the Hudson River. And uh, so this city is the last bastion of Prometheism on the earth. And then there are these Prometheus colonies, which are briefly referenced in inside of asteroids, you know, uh, hollowed out asteroids in the asteroid belt, and a lot of people who uh, resisted the reimposition of tradition have fled there as exiles, self-exiles. Uh, but yeah, Gotham is the la- it's like Zion in the Matrix. You know, it's the last bastion of resistance. And Dana Avalon comes to the conclusion that the uh, the battle is lost in the present and that the only way to win the war is to engage in this time travel operation. And so um, she basically organizes a group of time travelers and she sends them three years ahead of herself to 1977 uh, to to be based in New York and to acquire the resources and develop the structures that are gonna be necessary to carry out certain operations uh, aimed at altering the timeline. With one principal objective being preventing the collapse of the Soviet Union, but just to go back and, and fill in uh, you know some of her biography in relation to what you uh, just mentioned, yeah, she's a rebel she she's a person who's depicted as uh, you know having had serious problems with her parents who are these scions of Prometheism. Her father's a construction magnate, and her mother's an architect, and together they designed this uh, you know new version of of new york um and in the description of the kind of uh what I want to call it um resume of her parents, I incorporated this experience that I just related to you about this strange young woman who told me about these simulacra. Her parents specialize in a style of architecture, which I describe as having become prominent around the twenty forties. Uh, where people retreat into like gated communities that are uh, simulacra of various epochs in the past, with the most popular of them being simulacra of 1980s America. And, you know, uh, now people can't help thinking of Westworld reading this part of uh, Uberman. But uh, you got to keep in mind that when I had this experience and this woman told me this, there was this was like I don't know how many fifteen years or something more before Westworld was a thing uh, in media. So this has been an idea in the back of my mind for quite a while, and I incorporated it into Uberman. Um, and Dana Avalon, in fact, you know one of the the uh, points of uh, contention with her uh, parents is that she thinks this is a a bankrupt um enterprise that this is uh really betraying the spirit of prometheism to simply reconstruct uh various epochs and to retreat into simulacra of the past and it isn't really true to the innovative and visionary spirit that uh you know prometheism was supposed to foster
1: yes and what uh, the name dana well avalon we can think Arthurian, but dana what does it mean in uh persian isn't That a goddess i think
3: so, it has a very profound meaning. It's probably the single most important uh, concept in Zoroastrianism. Dana is an Indo-European word that you find in Greek in the form of Dianoia, um, and in modern Persian, it also has yielded. It's yielded two words in modern Persian: Dana, which means knowing, and Dane which means duty, but the original ancient Persian dana means conscience, and the dana was um, symbolized as a valkyrie-like maiden who is your true spiritual form. She is a mirror to the state of your soul, which you encounter in, you know, what the Tibetans call the bardo state after death, you're, sp- you're supposedly uh, meant to come face to face with this exteriorization of your psyche in feminine form. And it's always feminine, regardless of whether the person's a male or a female who's died, um, which is interesting, you know, because the Dana is also supposed to be a harbinger or herald of the form that you take after the Freshgard, when you become a Fereshta, a perfected person at the end of history. Uh, that's like a a final crystallization of the Dana that was always being cultivated within you throughout your successive incarnations. And it's fascinating that the ancient Persians and and other Iranian peoples, uh, like the Medes and Scythians, would conceive of this form as feminine. Um, And, you know, it's related to why I called the book Uberman. Again, despite the fact that it has a female protagonist, there's something I'm saying here about, you know, the relation between genders and the dominance of patriarchy throughout the course of human history and what it would mean to transcend history also in that sense of, of the dominance of the male uh, and uh, you know what the future may portend in terms of a restructuring of uh, relations between genders and you know the, the psychology of, of gender. Uh, so yeah, Dana means conscience and it's related to uh, the The evolution of one's spectral form throughout the course of time on the way to total self-actualization.
1: Very nice. I love it. Yeah, powerful name. Uh, Vance, what do you think, or any questions? Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, I love science fiction, so the futuristic
2: uh, possibilities are of interest to me. So I was going to ask you, Jason, uh, what? how did you use the uh, future technology? You know, what kind of technology exists in 2112 that relates to, you know, Prometheanism and uh, the state of the
3: society that you've extrapolated?
1: So vans can start buying stock. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Good question. So... Um, Some of this is actually based, again, on uh, I don't know what you want to call them, uh, visions, uh, uh, precognitive, clairvoyant glimpses or things that I've had throughout the years, which I've never talked about. Um, I've seen this city, this city that I call Gotham in Uberman. And um, I can describe it to you in even perhaps, you know, more detail than I than I incorporated into the book. Uh, depending on how you want you know whether you want to draw me out on it or not um, but essentially there were these buildings that were made of something that looked like crystal it was like a like a it was like glass that had the durability of stone and there's a part where i described these skyscrapers as as having you know feeling like slabs of granite that's true but i also described them as as if there were crystals growing out of the hillsides of the Palisades. And so the quality of these buildings was like something between, um, very hard stone, like, you know, like the diorite that the ancient Egyptians carved into, but actually it's a kind of artificial glass that's fortified. And so it also has a crystalline structure to it, which, I mean, you see that in stones too, where, where, you know, um, uh, gemstones that are cut at certain angles, the way they reflect light, and the other thing about these buildings was that they often curved at the base, so that uh, the elevators didn't only go straight down; they went down and then slid at an at a like a 45 degree or diagonal angle as they um, you know uh, reached their terminus at the base of the buildings. So they had elevators that would go not just, you know, vertically but in various curved directions. And when the elevators would open on a given floor, the architecture uh, or interior design of the hallways and and you know the the floor space in general was different on each floor and it could change on each floor depending on the day or the week. So they were using something like what I guess nanotechnology people call a utility fog, a, a, um, uh, rearrangeable foam of nanites that are maybe put on top of some very elemental core structure that allow the walls and rooms and hallways to change shape and assume different architectural styles, uh, you know, on different days, depending on how you program the system. Uh, like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's like a kind of augmented reality. You know, it's not augmented reality in the sense that you'd have to wear contact lenses or glasses to see it. It's more like the holodeck in Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, That's what these floors were like. And each floor of the building is like this. Like, you know, it, it can shift its shape uh, depending on how you program the system. Then the other thing, which I don't think, I don't think I really went on about this in Uberman, but uh, I had a, I had a, uh, you know, a few um, passages about this in Faustian Futurist. There are these subterranean maglev trains, and highways don't exist anymore. Suburbs, you know, have been decimated, and basically, you know, in Uberman, Gotham is the last city standing against the traditionalist imperium that has consolidated control worldwide. But leading up to that, the Prometheus have a number of these crystalline cities in various places in the world. And they're not connected by overground highway systems anymore. They're connected by subterranean maglev trains that are in vacuum tunnels. So they move at hypersonic speed. Uh, and they basically allow for a, a metropolitan society to maintain its connectivity over vast geographical distances. Um, whereas the world around these cities has either, you know, been decimated and its population reduced to destitution, or the traditionalists have taken that, you know, demoralized population and herded them into, uh, basically regressive communities based on customary, uh, traditions of one sort or another. Uh, so these, these cities are like, you know, uh, fortified islands of, um, progressive civilization in the midst of uh, a largely um, regressive world, so thats uh, that gives you some sense of architecture and engineering and infrastructure in terms of society, one of the most important things that you see in Uberman is uh, that past life, so you know science has uh, transcended this mechanistic materialist paradigm that I think we can recognize is already on its last legs today. And um, so, for example, it's a Prometheus rite of passage in the world of of, uh, 2112 to undergo past life regression. And there are established protocols uh, for, you know, this process of past life regression uh, anywhere between the ages of 18 and 22, which involves sensory deprivation um, in... um, uh you know these uh what do they call them the tanks you know these uh sensory isolation tanks yeah isolation tanks uh and uh the administration of certain neuroactive compounds certain um you know psychotropic drugs uh as well as uh uh stimuli that uh are fed into the brain by a computer system so there's there's uh, you know there are multiple elements to this technology of a high-precision past-life regression hypnosis that is a um, common practice uh, amongst the, you know, remaining metropolitan population in cities like Gotham.
2: That sounds cool. I guess it's almost like Escape from New York in reverse, where every place (laughs) else
3: is the prison. Right, that's right, yeah.
2: Cool. How about surveillance technology? I mean, in twenty one twelve, or all these uh, the, these Archons, so to speak, are they? Uh, do they have special technology where they roam over the planet and uh, can see anything they want anywhere? Or and how do the Prometheans handle that?
3: Yeah. Well, one of the really, um, uh, I suppose. How can I put it? dark and and maybe uh, demoralizing things that I say toward the beginning of Uberman is that the Olympians or, you know, um, these traditionalists uh, that uh, have dominated the planet really could attack Gotham at any time. And they're leaving, they've already raised all these other um, defiant modernist cities to the ground. And they're only leaving Gotham standing as an example of uh, you know, Sodom or Babylon to this uh, you know demoralized traditionalist population that they want to herd into these uh, you know regressive encampments that they're building all over the earth. So they they use Gotham as they you know to answer your question, they are surveilling Gotham regularly, and they've you know enmeshed the last remaining Prometheists in a net of surveillance. Uh, But they're leaving Gotham standing um, in the late 21st century, going into the early 22nd century, so that it can serve uh, within the context of their propaganda, their state propaganda, as an example of a kind of Sodom or a Babylon, you know, a sin city uh, that, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to be in and that epitomizes everything that was wrong with modernity. So, yeah uh it's pretty dark and of course you know it's this kind of thing that leads the protagonist dana avalon uh to the hopeless conclusion uh that or rather to the conclusion that continued struggle in the present is hopeless and that the only hope is to engage in this time travel mission to rewrite the past interesting
2: very interesting
1: yeah and in the in this future you or this Georgiani fellow is not popular, is he? I mean, you even write, quote, the gatekeepers of Prometheism saw the potential return of Georgiani as their worst nightmare. So you're not welcome in your own future home or story, Jason.
3: (laughs) Yeah, so I I think that this is a point that was very very well made, excuse me, um, by Dostoevsky in um, that part of the Brothers Karamazov, which is, uh, you know, the story of the Grand Inquisitor. Where basically, long story short, uh, I think it's uh, it's medieval inquisitorial Spain or some some context similar to that, where the, you know the Catholic Church and its scholastic authorities, you know, have total control over society and they're you know running a society like a well-oiled machine. And basically, you know, Jesus comes back and starts. Uh, Starts uh, making trouble again with his preaching and um, he's arrested and they bring him uh, into basically the uh, inquisitorial uh, torture chambers and they sit him down and explain to him that there's really no need for him because they have everything under control. And, you know, he, he can only uh, uh, wind up damaging what they have forged from out of Christianity as a, a doctrine and a blueprint for essentially a totalitarian society. Uh, so you know, I think Dostoevsky is making a very important point there about what often happens to um, you know visionaries who um, who have their thought misappropriated uh, into the basis for systems of coercive control and um, by ideologues who uh, reduce the thought of that person to propaganda. Uh, I think that those would be the first people to basically um, round up and execute uh, the visionary that they're attempting to capital, who's thought they're attempting to capitalize off of. And I think this is probably, I mean, I hate to say it, because in some ways, I, I, I deeply respect the Soviet Union. Uh, and I make that very clear in Uberman. I mean, Dan Avalon's primary mission is to prevent the collapse of the Soviet Union. Because in many ways, I think the Soviet Union was the left hand of Prometheus and that the world humanity would be stronger uh, had the Soviet Union continued in its symbiotic relationship with the United States, um, and that we would be much less likely to, uh, to collapse in the face of um, an assault by the forces of tradition should, should the Soviet Union have been able to survive as you know a, a left fist of Prometheus together with the right hand that is the United States. Uh, But that having been said, I kind of do think that if, let's say, Karl Marx had shown up during the period of Stalinism, he'd have wound up, you know, at the very (laughs) least in Siberia. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the kind of point I'm making there on Uber.
1: No, makes sense. And I do like uh, there's some there's a lot of cool stuff in your novel, like. uh, I think your Dana's parents are saying that uh, she's riding Satan's ass, and it's a Persian saying about being reckless and morally questionable and being outlandish and outrageous. I'm like, oh, I gotta adopt that to ride Satan's ass.
3: Yeah, I'm sure you've been a rider of Satan's ass for quite a while. That's why I like you. You know. <laughs>
1: And I'm assuming uh, by the ending of uh, Uberman that this is not the end. This is a, another novel in the series.
3: I hope that that turns out to be the case. Yeah, I, you know, an Open-ended
1: cliffhanger.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I live to write it, right? If I, if I live to tell the tale, <laughs>
1: sure.
3: uh, there should be a third volume that rounds out this trilogy.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, we look forward to it in the future or any, as always, we look forward to anything you put out, Jason. uh, We need this stuff more than ever, but uh, yeah, we are at the end. Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company on this.
2: Oh, it's fascinating. I can hardly wait for the movie to come out too. It would be a fantastic looking movie.
3: (laughs) Well, I'll just make a final point on that. Um, It has to be made into a film, both Faustian Futurist and Uberman. And the route that I want to take, uh, to be perfectly honest with you about that, is uh, that I think it should be adapted into graphic novels first, both mm-hmm. Faustian Futurist and Uberman, and then the graphic novel should be used as a shooting script.
1: That makes sense. Yeah, I can see it. Very visual, action-packed, philosophical, yeah. and intense, and again, yeah, graphic novels a great medium for this stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I would I would definitely agree. It's awesome. Well, hopefully it'll happen. And well, Jason, as always, we appreciate you coming to the virtual Alexandria, this time discussing your second novel, Uberman.
3: Thank you so much, Miguel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again, Vance. And I look forward to talking to you both again before long. Sounds good.
1: Thank you. And there you have it, you modern-day Tom Sawyers, your mind not for rent any god or government. First part of our interview with Jason. In our second part, Jason will share about Nazi occult technology and other breakaway civilizations. He'll share, too, his interactions a few years ago with Jacques Valet and what came out of it. You'll be surprised at his fictional interaction with Gish Lane Maxwell and some truths about a real-life version. He'll discuss his views on the Tartaria conspiracy, and some of you will be disappointed as they're not kind. His sharing of Ayn Rand is perhaps a little kinder, as you will see. And we'll talk about much more. As a bonus for all subscribers, as I mentioned in the intro, I'll include, for context, our interview on Faustian Futurists. Don't miss it. So please become a member for the full Uber content. It's only 6 dollars for AB Prime, or 4 dollars at Red Circle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. For AB Prime members and higher level patrons, you'll also get access to my private Facebook group and Discord channel. If you find value in this content, please support. Your support can be in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or even the US Mail. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to donate via Stripe now. A tip. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wishlist. Get your popular Nat Today Archons t-shirt today. Don't forget my voiceover availability. I'll bring you stellar voiceover with down-to-earth professionalism. No matter the project or the scope that you need. I'm also on Rockfin or Odyssey if crypto's your bag. If you need any help with all these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always.